Welcome back to the Pink Smoke Podcast, Mr. John Arminio. How you doing, sir? I am well, Mr. Krebs. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for coming back, man. Um, uh, we had the last end of the last uh, James Bond episode decided we were going to uh, do two decades worth of Bond, uh, all the Brosnan films, plus the first two Daniel Craig's, but you very wisely advised me that maybe uh, we should change it up a little bit and actually talk about just the Brosnan era of Bonds. I think that's a good idea because um, once you get into the Danny Craig's, the order of the, the chronology gets a little bit screwy, yeah. um, and, but it definitely feels like a different sort of era. And I think since we've been sitting here waiting for no time to die for so long, uh, it kind of gives us the privilege to kind of play with this format just a little bit. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're actually going to spend this episode talking about the four Pierce Brosnan films, uh, which range from 1995 to 2002. But before we get into that, I think we need to just take a minute and um, just face the reality that we've lost the Bond, James Bond, Mr. Sean Connery recently. Uh, I'm glad that we got to extol some of his work in a um, episode of Five from the Fire that we did, where I asked you to pick uh, movies uh, starring the Bond actors that you would save from oblivion if they were in a warehouse that was on fire and you got to talk about some of your favorite connery movies but let me just ask you john um after he passed away what were some of your thoughts what uh, looking back or some of the films that uh you thought you have to get into in tribute yeah um i actually just rewatched uh the hill which was one of my five from the fire um about a week ago and it had been a while but that movie just like knocked me out all over again like it's incredibly bleak and you know not much happens in the movie except people getting beaten down by whatever system they're in or whatever system they built for themselves and i know that movie only happened because you know connery said okay i'll keep doing these bond movies if you let me do this the whatever product i want and so i just wish i could have been at a studio meeting where he came up, he came in with a script. I want to do a two hour, 10 minute military prison movie about people going up and down a hill over and over again. Yeah. Just so, you know, just the, the balls on that guy, like it's incredible. And, you know, you know, two movies from later in his career that didn't make it in my list, which saddens me were, you know, Robin and Marion and in the name of the Rose, which are incredibly, you know, divergent takes on period films, um, pretty unique, uh, you know, most Robin Hood movies focus on the action and the adventure and the swashbuckling, but Robin and Marion is this aesthetically beautiful and thematically, like, wise meditation on aging and the legacies we've left for ourselves and our ability to... um, redeem ourselves for our mistakes and to probably set things right and to hold on to the things that we love. And yeah, great. A great yeah. look at what happens when it's over, when the, when the title card has come up, it's the end when the book yeah. is done. What then, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful film and the Hill is just, yeah. I didn't get to uh, talk about it much when we did our fire from the fire because I was too busy making family business jokes. Um, but that is an incredible, just an incredible movie for anyone who's not seen the Hill. Yeah, it's top notch. Yeah. And in the name of the rose, um I'm I'm fascinated by that movie. Um you know, it's adapted from an Umberto Echo novel whose 
he's like a medieval philosopher, like a philosopher on the medieval times and what that means for us today. And he has a book called On Ugliness, just about the aesthetics of ugliness and what defines ugliness in Western culture. And that is a profoundly ugly movie. Like it's self-consciously constructing its characters and its settings to be revolting. And so for a mainstream movie to just be so uncomfortable to look at, I think is so like so different from what we're supposed to seeing, supposed to be seeing and to have like one of the greatest movie stars of all time in a movie like that is just so fascinating. And so, yeah. So if anybody hasn't seen in the name of the Rose, I'd definitely give it a watch. I'm, I'm one person who has not seen the name of the Rose. And so I'm excited to give that one a whirl or a few, I mean, he made so many movies that obviously, even though I'm a big fan, uh, name of the Rose is one of them. I've never seen the great, train robbery that he did with michael Crichton. i've never seen cuba which he did with lester mm-hmm. uh reteamed after uh robin and marion uh the presidio wrong is right there's still a ton of connery films that i have not actually ever seen yeah. so i'm excited to get caught up and uh, again sort of pay homage to the man uh who you know we spent the whole uh well most of the first episode of our series talking about how terrific he is and how this series obviously would not have uh been sustainable i think without an amazing lead actor, iconic movie star like yeah. Sean Connery. And he was just, uh, you know, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to see him go. But uh, again, to celebrate all of his work, you know, I just, you, you feel grateful for that, yeah. obviously. And we um, also lost Diana Rigg this year, which was, we should mention that too. Yes. Yeah. From on her another, service. another tragedy. Yeah. I mean, she's in probably the most, um, I don't know, out of step Bond movie in the, in the, in the canon, because, you know, George Lazenby isn't um, an iconic uh, leading man the way the other Bonds are, but I think she really sets that movie on fire. And, you know, she, I think the fact that she was able to gain a whole new generation of fans for her work on Game of Thrones, uh, just as a testament to her power as an actress. Uh, And so it, it really warms my heart that she, ended her career on such a high note with, with that. Oh, role. for sure. Yeah. And for me, she's, you know, always been more famous as Emma Peel on the Avengers. So yeah. um, I'm always going to remember her for that more even than the Bond film. But yeah, Tracy in that film, and we, we talked about it, but uh, such a great, strong female lead. Even when, even in that one where she's captured and she kind of goes into the, the classic, uh, you know, Bond girl role she's keeping Blofeld on his toes, you know, yeah. like he seems dominated by her in a way that I think, you know, only Diane Rick could have pulled off, uh, kind of exuding that authority and that power over men was really part of her persona on screen. So, Definitely, uh, yeah. yeah, really sad to lose her as well. And that's just, that's what happens as we get older, you know, yeah. <laughs> our heroes, yeah. I'll take off. Um, but, um, just thanks to all those uh, wonderful actors who've made this series as great as they have. Um, and speaking of which, let's talk about Pierce Brosnan. Sure. And the actors who um, made this era of Bond. Um, we start with 1995's Goldeneye. And um, John, why don't you tell me what you think of Goldeneye? Uh, yeah, this is one that's always going to hold a special place in my heart because it was the first Bond movie I saw in the theaters. And, of course... Um, really? Yeah. And I would have been just the right age for... Uh, the the notoriously 
at least for the time, late GoldenEye video game, uh, which came out a year or two after the movie. But um, it was just something that I spent hours and hours and hours playing. And, you know, there have been other video game adaptations of movies before, but this is one of the best ones. And also one of the ones that really recaptured what it was like to be in the movie a little at least because you know for the mid 90s video game technology it did a really it did a really great job of capturing the feel of the movie um recreating the sets recreating the characters um it it's obviously dated now um but it was just a way to keep reliving that movie experience especially it was one of the first games that you could you know, have a great time playing with three other people at the same time. Um, and so it was a really important video game in video game history. And so that's always going to be tied into my experience with the movie. You know, I was born in 1984. So, you know, that being 12 and 13 playing the hell out of the game is just, you know, the exact right age. Pop culturally, yes. For me, college was South Park and GoldenEye 64. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that really did define the experience. I mean, we would just play that literally all night. Uh, there's this great Stephen King uh, story uh, from his collection, Hearts in Atlantis, uh, which is about um, a group of college kids uh, during the Vietnam era, during the draft, who are engaged in a um, uh, continuing competition of hearts, the card game, and become obsessed with, instead of focusing on their studies, uh, they play hearts even at the um, threat of be of losing their you know scholarships and being kicked out of college and then having to be drafted and go to Vietnam. Uh, they just kind of letting their future go because they get so involved in this hearts game. And for me, that's what GoldenEye sixty four was in college. You know, like at the threat of being <laughs> throwing away your scholastic career, uh, you basically were just stayed up all night. <laughs> skipping yeah. class the next day because you know you had to stay out of the vent you know it was like the uh the, the rally cry uh anytime we would play against each other so yeah um i missed goldeneye in the theater i think uh that was a combination of it being hard for me to get to a movie theater where my college was located not having a car but i think it speaks a little bit too because i realized looking back at these films i only saw one of them out of the four in the theater which I don't think it was a decision at the time. Like, I'm not seeing that one. It just kind of, I think, retrospectively speaks for how little I was excited about Brosnan as Bond. Mm. Um, and I, I, I have two thoughts about Brosnan as Bond. Uh, one of them, I think, was an intentional thing that they did in the movies, and another one was sort of an accidental thing. I'll, I'll talk right now about the the um, more purpose uh, thing that they did on purpose, which I think they made him more of a Superman. You know, even more than Roger Moore, I felt like their decision was to make this Bond super invulnerable and very self-aware of it. And part of that, I think, is the knowledge that everyone knows who Bond is, that there's no question going into this, you know, that he's going to survive the movie. Just by definition, this character obviously has an invincibility about him, but that Brosnan plays it like he knows it. There's this very specific shot in Goldeneye where He's setting a timer on a bomb. He's like leaning up against a wall and bullets are going all over him. They're inches away from his head. And one comes really close and he kind of moves his head just slightly, almost like it's an irritation. Yeah. Like the bullets are more like mosquitoes than something that could literally remove his head from his body. Um, and that's a very specific choice on how to like present this bond. And for me, it's, it's going too far. 
for me, it's going too far because you need those moments where Sean Connery's Bond is sweating through his shirt while he's trying to escape, you know, uh, the tunnels and Dr. No, he's going through the vents or Roger Moore coming off the centrifuge and looking like he's going to vomit all over the floor. You need those moments of vulnerability and to have Bond be someone who not only is a superhuman, but knows he is. For me, that's part of the reason that the Pierce Brosnan Bond feels off. I have definitely uh, cottoned to him more in the years since. Uh, I like him more than I used to, but I think even at the time, I didn't want a Bond who knew he was going to survive, who was going to go into every mission feeling that sure and that, you know, obviously I'm never, none of us are ever going to be as cool as James Bond, but we like to think that at least there's something human about him that we can kind of sympathize with in a way. So that this air for me takes that away on a, on a bit, on a big note. So until maybe the last film of the series, which we'll get to, um, that said, I, I like Goldeneye. I think it's a really good movie. I think there's a lot of fun to be had. Um, uh, obviously a lot of that comes from Vamka Jensen playing Xenia yeah, on yeah, the yeah. top. Um, I, I actually do think that head tilt is the defining moment of Pierce Brosnan's role as James Bond or, or the, the moment that defines the tone going forward. Uh, I, act, I actually love that moment in this movie um, because I think the danger of Sean Bean as Alex Trevelyan, and I, I love him in this role, is an extraordinarily dangerous opponent, both mentally and physically. And especially with that great fight at the end on the on the, the satellite rig that they have in that like little work shed. Um, I, I, I love that fight. I think it's one of the best of the series. And there's in that moment, I feel like there's a real danger um, physically to James Bond in a way that we don't see in the main villain almost ever. Um, and so I think in, in GoldenEye, you need those little slight superhero moments to make you believe that he can defeat Alex Trevelyan. Um, But going forward, it becomes a little problematic when he's going up against, you know, media moguls, um, whose whose main goal is to get better ratings. So it, it, it sets a tone that I think kills it in GoldenEye, but sets problems for the franchise going forward. That's a really good way of putting it, yeah. I mean, but even even that fight with uh, Trevelyan on the satellite when he kind of slides down the ladder and gives, you know, remembers to give like a grunt, like an oof, you know. Yeah. Even that to me feels, but then he's, he's fine jumping onto a helicopter immediately yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's no thing. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, just having that in my head just makes him like, just, just less special in a way, mm-hmm. I think, than the previous incarnations of Bond and maybe even the Craig Bond to an extent, but I get that, you know, it does work in this movie. I would agree more so in the subsequent films. And I think the thing about him being a superhero for me is that the movies after GoldenEye try to play it both ways um, for Bond. It tries to be Roger Moore and tries to be Sean Connery at the same time. That was what's going to mention as the accidental sort of thing that happens. Yeah. So we get Pierce Brosnan, doing quips and having fun and then it tries to be really serious and you know heavy moments with him like mourning the death of a lost love second after a comedy scene with Vincent Chiavelli so and in isolation those scenes are great but having them juxtaposed so quick up against each other I I don't know what the franchise is trying to do I know I'm, I'm skipping ahead um 
in, into these movies, but it, I think it's just the template of my frustrations going forward. Yeah, it's an important thing to bring up. I mean, I think one of the reasons that this happens is that this this era of the series wants to call the cake a misogynist dinosaur and still have sex with it. You know what I yes. mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it wants to, you know, acknowledge that Bond is outdated, that the very concept that Fleming's characterization of him is of a different era and that they're going to have, that they are very specifically trying to fit him into the mid nineties. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, they wanted, they wanted to be a superhero. They want him to have the crazy gizmos. They want him to be fun and funny and exciting while trying to bring it down, kind of force him down to the ground a little bit. So you do have these moments of seriousness that feel like Connery or Lazenby. And then these moments of ridiculous, you know, uh, almost fanfare, yeah. like the Roger Moore movies. And I agree that is the main, that is the accidental thing that happens with these Brosnan films that absolutely does not work. They just couldn't find a balance between the serious and the silly. I think also yeah. they kind of perceived Dalton's take as being a failure, which we know was not true, um, but they weren't going to let Brosnan go all the way down to earth. Um, I would compare it to Die Hard, right? Which is a very serious action movie with comedy in it, with moments of levity that you enjoy, even though you still uh, appreciate John McClane's vulnerability and his humanness. Uh, and then uh, the same year that this movie came out, we got Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is a buddy comedy, you know, yeah. that has relies a lot more on superhero antics and one-liners and is a fine and entertaining movie, but just is not hitting that balance that the original Die Hard does. And I think that sort of just speaks to the era that we're in where they want the audience, they're, they're worried about the audience having a good time. They don't want to ostracize them with a lot of heavy stuff. And, but they do want to add that stuff in there. So yeah. I, my thought is like, you can have the heavy stuff with comedy. You can't so much have comedy with some heavy stuff, which is, you know, more often than not the, the problem that some of these films have. And, and I think the theme of, you know, we're just a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union for Goldeneye, the theme of a spy who trained to defeat the Soviet Union now finding himself not know having a skill set that is outdated and totally useless for any other career path. I think that sort of reflects the foreign policy of America and England at the time. And so I think is a very, you know, cogent way to approach a spy thriller in the early to mid nineties. And I, I think that was a great decision for Goldeneye. Um, you know, showing Bond having to adjust to uh, this new era while reckoning with the sins of his own past and the, the past sins of England as, as a nation. And, you know, that is some real heavy, deep thinking thematics. But as the, the series went forward, it just got, it tried to get sillier and stay as serious. And yeah, like you said, it just, the balance just falls off. Yeah, too often the themes come out in the dialogue, you yeah. know, than, than they do in the actual execution of the film, um, which is a shame. But I think that Goldeneye, at least with the Alex Trevelyan character, obviously being another double O who is disenfranchised and kind of decides to switch sides and is constantly reminding Bond, you know, that they're just paid assassins, that it really doesn't matter, that, you know, they're, they're rogue agents. 
uh, practically that, you know, the world is sort of theirs to, to do with what they want and that these alliances no longer matter, that these lines that they formerly defended are kind of blurred now or completely gone. That, that works for me. Like I like all that stuff. Um, I, I, there's so much stick in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Between mini driver and the sledgehammer to the <laughs> engine. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, you don't need it guys. Um, Although again, this one I think is the most. I, I think it's easy to say this one is the most successful of the four by a long shot because there is plenty of it to plenty in it to love. There's still plenty of adventure and Zinnia on the top. Uh, even though she, it's it's all kind of callbacks. It's kind of like the Fatima blush in the car introduction uh, with Brosnan giving her the little Roger Moore nod out the window. Um, it's given us the stuff that we love in sort of a new context, uh, which I guess should feel recycled, except that. Famke Jensen is so fun in this movie. Yeah. It is clearly having a fun time. I don't know if any actor has ever had this much fun playing a character in a Bond and movie. She's just so... Her physical presence in this movie is unlike any other you know, Bond actress because she's about as tall as Pierce Brosnan and she's incredibly attractive. She fits into these outfits so perfectly. And you you can see how she could just easily kill James Bond. Like she's, she seems so dangerous, so mentally unhinged and her character is having as much fun as, as you know, Famke Janssen is. And it's just a joy to watch her. I, I even love like she's when she enters the uh, Severnaya um, satellite facility, she's in a like leather couture version of a Russian military uniform. Where would oh, yeah. you, where would you get, yeah, oh yeah, but also where would you get that? Are there, she would have to have had that specially made by like a, a Soviet fashion designer. It's insane. But I adore her in this role. Um, she's the the sexiest serial murderer in, in uh, Bond history, perhaps. Absolutely. Oh, to say the least, yeah. She's also, she's also a theme that isn't spoken outright but she's a walking std right i mean she literally yeah. to have sex with her is to be killed you know you literally will die if you have sex with her uh, and that's you know going into this era of you know sexual consciousness she is a literal danger to a pro uh, promiscuous man like james bond who cannot have sex with her if he wants to yeah. survive and it's a great way to keep bond monogamous in this movie because mm -hmm. yeah, he'll, really. he'll usually have sex with the evil you know henchwoman mm -hmm. and either turn her or she'll say ha ha you didn't turn me and try to and try to kill him uh that doesn't happen because if you have sex with Zena on top she kills you <laughs> yeah so it's and, and i think that can act as a segue into just how great that is isabel score sorry yeah. um as and natalia like i she's one of the most well-rounded characters you know certainly in the pierce brosnan era but i love her as as the the main lead opposite james bond like she's a complete really interesting character and you know fascinating enough that she holds scenes by herself like she doesn't need to interact with james bond to hold the screen and here's this total unknown like in doing her own investigating during her her own you know capering in this movie and, and she holds our attention i think she's brilliant in the role i agree that was my exact takeaway watching the film this time was i can't i didn't remember her getting so much screen time 
but she absolutely grabs the movie when it's her turn and you feel for her character, you know, and she has that certainly has that vulnerability. I think that they take away from bond where she's, uh, you know, the only survivor of this massacre and has to get back to civilization and then unmask what's going on. Uh, and yeah, she, she really, she really works in this film. Uh, I love just, just an example, a scene that I always remember and I always love is after they've knocked, after Trevelyan has been revealed and they lock Bond in the uh, helicopter that's going to explode and she's shouting, Mr. Wake Up! You know, like yeah. screaming at him to get up. I love that moment. It's such a human moment of, you know, yeah. that's what you'd have to do in that situation is just scream at the top of your lungs to get the secret agent to wake up and save your ass uh, from this exploding helicopter. And, but uh, yeah, she is terrific. And she has one of those movie lines that just stays with me uh, for years afterwards. Like if I'm ever in like an excruciatingly detailed nerd debate about like spider-man's costume or whatever with somebody in in my head i'm just thinking you are like boys with toys just like <laughs> shut up and get over yourself that so that, that so that line will be with me forever she's definitely ahead of her time in the yeah. uh, you know being completely frustrated and done with these uh uh computer guys who she yeah. has to deal with all the time and one of course who ends up being a piece of shit uh, yeah. traitor <laughs> Um, another secret MVP of this movie is Gottfried Johns, uh, playing General Orlock. Orlock, yeah. is that how you put yeah, it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's great. I mean, obviously, he's a great actor. He was in the Fast, he's in tons of Fastbender films and other uh, great, great movies. So I love him in general, but I love this character too because uh, he also has a vulnerability. He is not, you know, uh, ahead of the game, he is not a guy who's going to get captured but like be five steps ahead of everyone so he got captured on purpose and he has this big plan he is a guy who literally has to improvise when he uh when bond shows up and the whole game is up he's got to run into the room and t talk fast and then shoot the you know, defense minister and you know he's and this is all like you, you just see in his face like oh my god this is all coming apart i've got to do something and luckily everything falls <laughs> just yeah. right for him because if it didn't then it would all be over like that would be the end of the plan um, you don't see that in Bond villains very often. And uh, he almost is the main Bond villain, you know, for half of the movie until, you know, Sean Bean comes back into it. So to kind of see him fall apart at that moment and then kind of lose uh, his position as the main Bond guy at the same time, it's fun. It's a yeah. fun performance. And, you know, the guitar solo of this movie is the big tank chase. Oh, and, yeah. and it's a fantastic scene. You know, Pierce Brosnan looks outstanding driving a tank in a suit you know adjusting his tie that's the moment where the tie gag works <laughs> but it's played it but he has to play against the tank and so we you cut back to him in the car and he's like you know taking swigs of of probably vodka out of that flask and you know like grinning and almost like resigned admiration for what bond's doing that helps the scene actually work like it gives it some levity and without levity, that scene would just be, you know, another mindless action scene. But it ends up singing. Yeah. And I guess you could say, conversely, you know, you need to believe that Bond is a Superman to believe that he could just jump into a tank and yeah. <laughs> turn the key and then he can drive a tank up and down the street. Uh, so there is that. And yeah, that scene is just so much fun and such a great, uh, great action set piece. Uh, that it could probably be 10 minutes longer and I probably would yeah. still, you know, and, wouldn't feel like And it. also huge, huge um, 
props to the production team for that scene because it's a mixture of sets and uh, second unit location shooting for St. Petersburg. Because there was a huge kerfuffle about getting permits to shoot in St. Petersburg, where sure. once the production got there, they were like, oh, by the way, it's going to cost you $3 million more million to shoot here than we told you. And so production had to grab with a cannon and leave and sort of ad hoc create St. Petersburg streets uh, in the studio. And so, you know, Peter Lamont, like, absolutely killing it once again on, on the production side. No, absolutely. This movie looks great. Marty Campbell, you know, doing his first Bond film, uh, does a great job. The direction is terrific. It's always a fun movie. It doesn't lag at all. I don't think that there's a boring scene in the movie. I don't think so. Um, and doesn't feel super transitional either. It feels like this is just, this is the world of Bond that we know. And then we're just kind of got a new actor, you know, in the, in the tux, in the, uh, in the suit. And we're still um, early enough in the nineties. We get great model work from Derek Meddings. Like that, those MIG crashes into the, in, into the Russian satellite Severnaya location just look amazing. They do. They're terrific. Uh, the effects. Yeah. Are terrific in this movie as well. Uh, which we can't say for all of the movies we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. here. Uh, how do, what do we think of, of uh, Jack? Was it Jack Wade? Yeah. Played by, uh, uh, whoa. Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker. Thank you. Mitchell uh, himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly this part should have been played by Gary Busey though, right? I mean, it's basically taking Mil Pappas from uh, uh, Point Break and putting him into the Felix Leiter role. Uh, Bond even has a line where you know someone has called him a s- stiff ass Brit, or he, Wade calls him a stiff ass Brit, and he responds, you know, well he says, well uh, James Bond, stiff ass Brit, just the same way that Johnny Utah says, punk yeah, quarterback, right. punk, point break. So that whole you know dyna- dyna- dynamism between them obviously is taken, I think, from American action movies like that. And so it is strange that it's the Felix Leiter role, right, in the movie, but they says. Felix Slater's not cool enough for the '90s, so let's get Jodan Baker. It's it's a weird decision, like yeah, you know, like a lot of these Pierce Brosnan movies, the scenes themselves work in isolation, but it just it's a very strange decision to mm-hmm. have. I mean, like I love Jodan Baker, yeah, but I don't know what this character's doing in these movies. <laughs> I guess it's just sort of a consequence of the attempted continuity of these films that you can't have Felix Slater what like on a crutch with one leg you know I, I hobbling guess. out to say hey james how's it going i guess it's sort of an ableist decision as it were uh that we can't have you know a maimed cia contact in these films when you know why not we have oracle you know helping out in yeah. the dc universe why can't we have felix slider still active and still working anyway we get jack wade instead for two films and uh and he is what he is i guess <laughs> I, I just hate when he calls him jimbo it's just a <laughs> Just grates my ears, and again, the great I like I like Jodan Baker in general, but oh, this character is part of the shtick that I can do without in this film for sure. Uh, any other thoughts on Goldeneye specifically? Um, I, I I can't help but love Robbie Coltrane as Zukovsky. Uh, I know that's more more shtick, but it I think it gives acknowledgement to the rich history Bond has as a spy that he's had all these other adventures that we've never seen. And that he's constantly walking the line between doing favors for his friends and maybe killing them or, you know, getting favors from his enemies and instead of killing them. And I think it makes the character more interesting and psychologically deep. 
it is cool to think that there are villains that Bond has not killed specifically, so he could come back and torment them later. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah, and and you appreciate again too, you know, this fall of communism and uh, you know the end of the Cold War, but you still have these people who you fought during it who are now could become allies because why not? Yeah. Because there's no conflict between you anymore. I agree. I kind of like that veteran respect that they have for each other, uh, and Robbie Coltrane in general is a welcome yeah. presence in films. So. And I mean, yeah, Judy Dench is M. Like, I, I, I know that it's that scene with him uh, and Judy Dench about being a misogynist dinosaur is on the nose, but I love it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I love that it's it's a lot of traditional M and Bond scenes with M chewing Bond down, him getting to drink at work while his boss yells at him. <laughs> but it's like she's just such a good actress. Like she's one of the best actress England actors England has ever produced and so to see her in an action movie is is just a, a treat yeah I mean it's cool to see someone you know of her stature you know being kind of a short lady having such again amazing authority over the men you know yeah. in the room and yeah when, when they you know they they try to you know talk down to her and remind her that she's just some lady she just you know puts them in their place every time yeah so that and, is and, definitely and I welcome. think this is a bellwether for how to judge the maturity of the scripts is that in this movie, she says, if you think I don't have the balls to send a man to die, you're dead wrong. And in the next movie, somebody else accuses her of not having enough balls to do the exact same thing. And it's, it works. It works when she says it, it just seems weird and uncomfortable when another male authority figure says it to her, because we just had this great movie establishing that she does we don't need to hear it again the same line from some other old white guy right no i agree with you on that um but yeah dench is interesting i think we've i think we've discussed before that she is clearly playing two different characters between the brosnan era and the the craig era oh yeah yeah. Uh, do you agree with that yeah um and in this one, I think she's a little more sympathetic to Bond. You know, she kind of calls him out and, you know, kind of keeps him drinking. But at the same time, uh, she feels like more of an ally than ever before. I mean, she's mm-hmm. an M who's like kind of more involved in what's going on and is more likely to kind of, you know, be his cheerleader and kind of tell him to, you know, go on and do what he's doing, even while she's sort of disapproving of some of his methods. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to have that ally in his corner. Uh, and the new Monty Penny. Samantha Bond, you know, she's um, kind of a one-liner machine in these movies, you know. Mm, she's yeah. very, her performance is very good, but uh, I feel like they didn't know what to do with her except for have her shoot innuendos left and right. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's not what it was, but it is what it is. Yeah, a, a little too forced. In yeah, these movies. Just, just a bit. Um, so Tomorrow Never Dies was the next movie from the director of Turner and Hooch and Stop and My Mom Will Shoot. <laughs> God. Um, I would say that you must love this one a little because Ellie Carver is the model of the disgusting, privileged CEO. Um, although then again, he also represents the dirty, manipulative media that's been so vilified in America for the past four years. So I don't know how this one is aged particularly. Um, I don't know if we could still see an Elliot Carver in terms of being, you know, uh, the Trump nightmare of a media mogul, someone who was literally making his own headlines. Uh, if that could be a realistic portrayal anymore, what do you think? 
Yeah, um, you know, he definitely has, you know, shades of Rupert Murdoch and Ted Turner. Um, but he was mostly, actually, in, at least in the writing and con- conceiving of the character, was modeled after Robert Maxwell, who was a British publishing magnate and former MP, who MI6 uh, suspected of being a Russian spy. And after he died, it was revealed that he was embezzling pension funds to shore up um, the shares of Mirror Group to save his companies from bankruptcy. So there was a lot of real world parallels to the, the scumbags in media in, in the you know late 20th century to Elliot Carver. So, and you know, we did have a, a president lie to get us into a war. Uh, so, you know, these sort of media manipulations happen a lot. Uh, whether I want to see it in a James Bond movie, I don't know. And I think, you know, Jonathan, I love Jonathan Price, but he's all over the place in this movie. I, I don't, yeah. like when he does like the, the chop sake mocking of Michelle Yeoh's martial arts. Jesus Christ. I, I, it's not clear <sighs> if we're supposed to be disgusted by it or if we're supposed to find it funny because he's a very charming villain. And so when he does that, it's like, that's not what a a suave CEO does. So I, I don't know what the movie is doing with him. Yeah. It feels like, you know, when Famke Jensen came on the set of gold, and said, I know exactly how to play this part and played yeah. it for all it was worth. Uh, it worked great. But if she was playing Alex Trevelyan, she would not have played it like that. You know, yeah. that yeah, would yeah, have been yeah. a completely different performance. And I think Jonathan Price couldn't make that distinction. And that's why we get the performance that we get here. In general, I would say that this movie, every decision made for tomorrow never dies is reasonable you know jonathan price is the bad guy a kick-ass female lead the callbacks to the old movies because there's not a single original idea in this entire film aren't bad decisions on paper but they just do not play in the film itself and i think this one is largely well it's completely watchable it's largely a failure i think uh this is the only one of the four movies i saw in the theater uh, I want to say because Titanic was sold out, but probably it was even more so because Jackie Chan mania had, you know, completely taken, mm-hmm. yep, taken over, yep. took me over in high school. And when I saw police story three, super cop, of course, like everyone in the world, I thought Michelle Yeoh is the real deal. Uh, right. They had been, you know, trying to sell us on Pamela Anderson action movies or, you know, Cynthia Rothrock taking a foothold in America, but it was really seeing Michelle Yeoh that thought that is a female action star. You know, yep. she clearly is the author of, her own persona and she is unbelievably amazing as an actor and also as a physical martial artist. So it was a good idea to put her in a bond movie. Um, but I think once they got her on there, they just had no idea what to yeah. do with this character. If, yeah. Cause if you've seen any of her movies and seen her fight and then see the fight choreography they have her do in, in this movie, it's not the same thing. Like they just not have her do. Yeah. They have her do clumsy front kicks to faceless bad guys who get knocked unconscious and disappear from the screen after one kick to the stomach. Um, and it's, it's such a waste of her talent. Like there are, she has some good scenes with Pierce Brosnan. I really do like the interaction with them on the motorbike. That stuff is fun. Uh, I like for me the, that falls flat. I think really, she and okay. Prost have no chemistry together. Uh, yeah, I, I think generally they have no chemistry, but th- that moment on the bike I think is fun. And then I do like the ad the 
Q scene with Q like scene with Pierce and her in the Chinese headquarters because I think mm-hmm. oh because I think that's the one moment we get of vulnerability from Pierce Brosnan is where he can't navigate these wacky gadgets the way he can in in, in Q's headquarters but right. she knows <laughs> how to and so she's able to kind of take the piss out of him in, in that one moment and so I like that part about the film. Yeah. No. Again, all this is stuff that like I could see in the script. Like, oh, this scene's going to yeah. play so well, um, and just I don't know if it's uh, Spottiswood's Roger Spottiswood's fault or or what. Uh, but yeah, this just doesn't play on screen. Yeah. I mean, they have Vic Armstrong and Dickie Beard as the coordinator and supervisor of yeah. the stunts on this film. They are two legends, um, and they do have some Hong Kong stuntmen as arrangers, but they did not have a fight choreographer, so. Michelle Yeoh when she gets into what's supposed to be what should be her guitar solo should be her big scene it's just completely flat and then for the script to have her end up as the damsel in distress just completely undermines everything that's come to that point you know I mean she should be the one saving Bond at the end of the movie obviously when you look back and think that you know the computer programmer from the last movie was a stronger action star than Michelle Yeoh in this one (laughs) you know you got a problem, you know. You know that there was some problem in the translation there. Yeah, so even the history of this screenplay is just so convoluted and backwards. So Bruce Feirstein, who had done Punch-Up on GoldenEye, was brought in to write a draft of the script initially, um, but they sort of turned that down, uh, the production. Uh, they brought in people like Donald Westlake to do uh, a concept or, or a pitch. They brought in Nicholas Meyer, you know, you know, wrote and directed star trek 2 among other great movies um that stuff was you know not used um production brought in a writer's room of people to try and get ideas and at least set out a template for uh action sequences so they could at least get pre-production on those uh, set pieces done while they were completing the screenplay but that script was thrown out and then they brought in bruce fierce to actually finish that script where you know to kind of put the finishing touches in the architecture of a script they already had so it was just a totally backwards way of making a script and so to pay all those people to get such a mediocre um script was really just such a such a waste in my opinion yeah sounds like a hollywood disaster that's why we get lines like bring out the c drill you know jeez yo not the regular drill you want the c drill specifically yeah um the torpedo that can make hairpin turns in the water yes (laughs) it's funny chris and i discussed the book that donald westlake ended up writing from his failed um uh, or his unaccepted bond script i guess one of the executives was a big westlake fan and had brought him onto the production thinking it'd be so cool to have a donald westlake bond movie even though if you're a westlake fan and he's one of my very favorite authors and probably one of my very favorite people i would say that is not a good mix, you know, yeah. like the Parker books and the Dortmunder books do not read Bond necessarily. So uh, I appreciate his effort, but yeah, it's like, that just was clearly just doomed from the, from the onset. One thing I uh, hate that I think this film starts, it might happen in Goldeneye, so I didn't notice, but it's actually, it's something that I had said before. I love the Bond movies for not using the titles to locate where we are. And right off the bo- right off the bat, this one starts with a terrorist arms bazaar. Oh God! On yeah. the Russian border to let Ugh. us know where we are, and you're just immediately like, "Is that a thing?" Yeah, <laughs> an arms bazaar. 
it's like the Donny Brook. Like this is the thing I yeah. didn't know existed. Uh, like they have like a cookout there. They're like they sell tickets to this thing. A bazaar, really? <laughs> yeah, if they just you know had like an unknown like the Ural Mountains or Southern Russia or whatever, it would have been perfect. But instead, that a Russian arms bazaar, and <laughs> and like so the stealth boat, right? There is stealth technology utilized for military vessels. That's definitely a thing. But if you launch a giant drill from your stealth boats, it defeats the purpose because (laughs) sonar detects sound. Drills are very loud. (laughs) So, like, it, it, it makes the whole plan just stupid. It's stupid. Uh, yeah, the stealth boat is fine looking. It's just, again, it's just no original ideas all in this movie. It's just yeah. Stromberg's, you know, yeah, plot all over again, you know, to be silently going around water, causing trouble between two sides and forcing them against each other. It's, yeah, they just really go back to the well a lot with this one. Yeah. Um, Especially because I I like the idea of like an international incident in Chinese territorial waters because there's still incidents between Japan, like the Philippines, Vietnam, China as to what is territorial waters, what is international waters. Like that goes on all the time. That's a very relevant like political ingredient to put in your Bond movie. And so to have it sort of wasted because, you know, a guy wants a a broadcasting contract is, you know, kind of disappointing. Yeah, no, it's again, I think it's one of those things where on paper it makes sense and it's a good yeah. idea. They just didn't execute it well. Uh, and Westlake's idea too was to focus on the transition of power uh, from England to China over mm-hmm. Hong Kong, which would have been a cool idea too. You know, like that's a neat idea. And of course, that uh, would have been more directly involved um, the Wei Lin character too, to you know, have yeah. the, that be kind of the central uh, event that's going on. Instead, it's, you know, a guy who wants exclusive broadcasting rights in China for the next 200 years. Okay. Uh, the henchmen in this one aren't great. Yeah. No, uh, have a, another Necros who's, yeah. Yeah, such a stupid, weak baby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's weird, though, is that the actor looks like a young Everett McGill, but not he licensed does. to kill yeah. Everett McGill. He has the exact same haircut as he does in Under Siege 2 Dark Territory. <laughs> It's bizarre. Uh, he's an acolyte of Dr. Kaufman, played by Vincent Schiavelli. I actually like, I like the scene where he, uh, where Bond comes into the hotel room and he's already hearing reports of uh, Terry Hatcher's death, Paris Carver's yeah. death, over the TV before he finds her. But that's cool. That's eerie. You know, I like yes. that. Uh, but it's immediately ruined when uh, Schiavelli enters the room and pops out a video, a VHS, and is like. This is going to play in an hour. It's like, ah. Now I have to imagine Kaufman sitting in the hotel room, waiting for the signal over the walkie-talkie. So he's coming to go, oh, okay, let me let me just put this VHS yeah. into the room. <laughs> you know, it ruins it. It ruins the eeriness yeah. of it. Whether If it had been a live TV broadcast, I think that would have been better. Although, again, we'd have to say, what kind of, I know he's supposed to be crazy, but what kind of villain commits these crimes, these international atrocities, and then tell you know puts it over his paper server and goes how did he know about it how could he possibly have known like if moriarty had walked into sherlock holmes's apartment and said 
so how about that big jewel heist that just happened? That was pretty wild. Some brilliant mind must have come up with that. And Holmes would go, what jewel heist are you talking about? Oh, the one that literally yeah. just happened that hasn't been reported. Don't know who could have done that. Yeah, because that's how Bond is initially able to get permission to investigate Carver is because he was able to be so far ahead of the story that M was able to be like, yeah, that is a little weird. Go, go spy on that guy. <laughs> He's so he's so gross. The way he says "delicious" is both gross and campy yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and his yeah. typing—it's it's so <laughs> aggravated because he's he, he's holding a tablet, you know. So that's you know, great kind of predictor of technology. But he's holding it with one hand and typing so obviously randomly and nonsensically that it's just so distracting. Like it takes any menace out of the character when when he does that. Oh yeah, completely agree. <laughs> ridiculous yeah so for a movie franchise that gets so much mileage on pure aesthetics to have these little details be like unappealing like takes away the mystique of the character in the franchise uh it completely does yeah uh the comedy in this too is just uh, the handcuff business the recurring humiliations of carver Cunning linguist, uh, edifice complex. He's my new anchorman. These are yeah. <laughs> these are groaners, man. I'm sorry. And uh, he's definitely going. We'd already discussed how he's kind of balancing between Connery and Moore. And I think this he just tries too hard to go in the more direction of the one-liners and the dad puns that uh, are just not appealing. You know, it's uh, let's let's see some of them. We developed a certain attachment for each other. Keep your shirt on when they've driven through some laundry. <laughs> Next time I'll take the elevator after they go down the you know, the, the building with the, the yeah. big uh, banner. It's like Darmok with this guy, you know? He can only communicate with her through, like, cheesy one-liners. That's how he bridges the gap because poor Michelle Yeoh is, you know, the receptor of all of these terrible yeah. ones, unfortunately. And and the, the helicopter chasing the bike, it's a good idea, and there are some great stunts in it, and it looks great, but also... There's so many poor Vietnamese people who have their homes ruined for the sake of this, you know, action scene. Uh, and, and, you know. Yeah, for the Brosnan and, movies, the collateral damage is yeah. off the charts. I mean, not only is he the most violent Bond, I think he ends up killing more people in his yeah. four movies than any of the other actors did in their six or seven movies. Uh, there's, yeah, there's just so much property damage and so much, clearly, so many civilians should be dead from these chase scenes. Yeah. And that's something that, Roger Moore said that he didn't want to do in his movies. Like he pointed, like th there was a moment that um, in the man with the golden gun where he pushes a kid into the, into a river, you know, and, and steals the boat. And he was like, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I don't want to make these poor people living in India or Thailand, the victims of our shenanigans. And so, <laughs> you know, like 20 years before this movie, the franchise was like, Oh yeah, that's not cool. We're supposed to be like taking it to asshole billionaires and dictators, not like people who are trying to do their laundry in the middle of the day. Rosnan would have punted that kid into like a boat <laughs> <Yeah>. propeller. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the bike jumping the helicopter is a cool stunt. I mean, this this moment, yeah. this, got, this movie's got moments. It's not a complete failure. There's some fun stuff, and I've definitely seen it a few times. Like I've definitely tried to give it a a fair shake, but all I get is stuff. Like I could shoot you from Stuttgart. Uh, oh my god! And yeah, uh, maybe stuff. 
and maybe it's because like I know Vincent Schiavelli as an actor, but he just he's such like a New York character actor to me. Yeah, and, the accent doesn't fit, right? It's just yeah, like, baloney from the yeah. If yeah, this if that character was in a Austin Powers movie, it would be outstanding. Like that would kill to have him try and torture Austin Powers with that same accent. But that's the problem with the Rosin movies is that they veer into Austin Powers territory. Yeah, it's important to note that, yeah, this is the Austin Powers, yeah, had come out at this time. And I was going to bring it up during World is Not Enough uh, because that one strikes me as particularly Austin Powers-esque. But uh, yeah, it did really fall over the line of parody quite a bit uh, in this era. And I think people's knowledge of the Austin Powers movies just made it worse, probably. Uh, And last thing I have to say about this movie is, and I only noticed it because I had the subtitles on by mistake while I was watching it this time. At one point, Brawson says, oh, sheesh. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't want a Bond who says, oh, sheesh. Interesting choice. Even Roger Moore would have thought of a better Bond mock than, oh, sheesh. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, Any other thoughts on this movie, John? Um, The Katie Lang song should have been the the main title song. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I think so good. I think that's how you can tell a true Bond fan is to say, Surrender is a great Bond song. And most people would say, what the hell is that? But like a true Bond fan, he's like, that should have been the theme song for Tomorrow Never Dies. And because, you know, oh, oh, and we failed to mention the worst score of the franchise was in Goldeneye. There's some awful stuff so they brought on david arnold to do the score on tomorrow never dies and he does a serviceable job he, he right john barry's gone right, he's retired yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so he is he hits all the right beats he he really leans heavily on the the bond theme that we all know because that was totally absent from goldeneye um but all the more memorable themes from his score are the theme are the are the surrender uh, is just the theme from surrender um so that that song really like carries the weight of it's like that plus the bond theme is basically the score for the movie and the song is fantastic yeah it's terrific and uh like the screenplay i feel like david Arnold probably thought that was going to end up being the song and that's why he totally yeah. took his cues from and the cheryl crow song isn't bad it's yeah. okay it's fine uh she is a little out of her depth i think with some of the uh you know some of the pitch she's asked to, to do in the chorus, but um, it's not until, and I feel like the producers even knew they goofed just from the way that Surrender comes, boom, right into the ending credits. And you're like, whoa, this is a fucking cool song. Yeah, I feel like they need to say like, here's another good song. You should listen to it. You know, <laughs> we're not going to replay the Cheryl Crow song. You should listen to this one instead. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, that's a, that's an underrated uh, aspect. I think of this, this movie for sure. Yeah. Is that, that song. Uh, at some point, I guess they were like, we got Sheryl Crow here. Who's Katie Lynn compared to Sheryl Crow? I don't know what made them decide to go with one over the other. but And that's you know a, a weird decision because Sheryl Crow is a great singer-songwriter, but Katie Lang is a killer vocalist yes, and a, and a performer. And that's what you need for a Bond theme. I agree 100%. Yeah, Sheryl Crow does not match her in that aspect at all. Which brings us uh, to 1999, right? Uh, the world is not enough. And uh, I'll let you take the lead on this one, John. What do you think of this yeah, one? I, I'm, you know, it, 
it overcorrects and you know i think it um it's an, it definitely shows a lot of problems with these uh, pace of production that these movies are on uh and while the previous movie sacrificed character to be set piece after set piece of action scenes this one sacrifices action scenes to emphasize character and mm-hmm. while i always love good character work the action in this movie is just so dull and so unengaging and so unimaginative that it you know it's it just not a fun watch and it's really tragic because i i love the idea of a villain seducing and manipulating bond and, and being on her side and then betraying him and also manipulating the guy who you think is the main villain, Robert Carlyle. And I love the dynamic of he, him being so like pathetic and sad and almost welcoming his own death. And he's, it seems like he knows he's being manipulated by Sophie Marceau's Electric King character. And so that just very kind of pathetic dynamic that they have is just really interesting to watch and totally unique in the franchise. But there's just so much of it that doesn't pay off um, on the action front that it just it's not a fun Bond movie. Um, and Michael Apted, who's a great director of you know documentaries, I, I think was a little out of his depth um, as far as you know doing a fun action movie. So maybe you can answer this for me then. <laughs> I've seen this movie several times. I still don't know what the villains are actually after in mm. this one. I mean, is it that Renard corrupted Electra? or she swindled him into helping her. What exactly are the stakes here? Just the bomb going off for some reason? I mean, it almost makes Elliot Carver and his exclusive rights to China uh, or whatever seem more interesting in retrospect because it's something about oil. I mean, Electra seems to resent her father, but she inherited his kingdom. So yeah, what's the problem? Kill the dad. The plan is over. You win. Uh, she's mad at M because... M failed to rescue her from being kidnapped, but she fell for Renard. So why is she indignant about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of, a yeah. lot of it doesn't make. Okay, yeah, okay. So it's the a bad plan, script. And I'll, I'll just yeah. say this: uh, I can never remember what they're up to. It's having JD Dench's M be the target of the villain's revenge is a bad idea. I'm glad they never did that again. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Well, yeah. The the plan is dumb for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah, it's basically a revisit of the like Goldfinger thing. Like, if you sabotage this, the, they want to blow up a nuclear device in Istanbul, which is a villainous thing. But it just to reroute like oil shipping lanes, as if oil companies wouldn't find another way to get their oil. But <laughs> their plan to detonate a nuclear device in Istanbul is to steal a nuclear weapon, but not use that nuclear weapon to detonate in Istanbul. They're going to put weapons-grade plutonium in a nuclear reactor of a nuclear submarine so that that creates a cascade reaction that leads to that sub's detonation to make it look like a nuclear accident. Like, okay, you want to make it look like a nuclear accident, not a terrorist attack, that's fine. But if you could just hijack a nuclear sub at any time, because Robert Carl just waltzes in and like gives brandy and snacks to the sub crew. And they're like, okay, sure. Fine. Why Not do you need one to... member of the crew said, I'm good. I had a yeah. big lunch. Yeah. They're all dead. <laughs> so now they have control of a nuclear submarine. 
why do they need weapons of plutonium in the first place? <laughs> Certainly there are more efficient ways of causing a nuclear accident if you have a nuclear submarine at your disposal than first stealing weapons of great plutonium and then shoving it into a nuclear reactor like like it's an erector set. Like it's it's so dumb. Yeah, I'm with you. Another thing I noticed this time, uh the the opening sequence is so long. It takes yeah. 14 minutes until we get to the credits. What does this movie think it is? The Departed? I mean, I it's not just that it feels long. It's that, you know, it goes from Bond, the opening with uh, uh, Bond with the Swiss banker and uh, almost being killed to meeting with M and introducing all of the supporting characters and Monty Penny, I think, pops up in there. And then getting to the big boat chase. Why didn't we cut to the chase literally with this? Like, why didn't we like open with the boat chase? Why all this these various scenes, I mean, literally felt, you know, 10 minutes in the movie, like, wait, did we miss the title? Did I miss the, did I sleep during the title sequence? It should have, should have happened by now because they're already into the, they're getting into the plot here. It's uh, weirdly off formula and uh, feels very, very clunky for a Bond movie. Yeah. And I understand if you want to throw out the formula and do something new and different. Um, I, I'm all for that, but they're going for the formula in a very sort of off kilter way, you know, and, and it throws you off to be like 20 minutes into the movie to then go into the title sequence that it, it just, you know, sets the audience off balance from, from the very beginning. It definitely, yeah. Didn't play well for me. And um, we were discussing, you know, collateral damage and I hate to be that, how did Bond not kill 50 people when he takes that boat to land? But yeah. how did Bond not kill 50 people when he takes that boat to land? But how does a boat... Crashing through restaurants and yeah. between alleyways yeah. and whatnot, you know? But the, he, he drives a boat over land and then turns the boat. How does a boat on land... Like, I understand Roger Moore drove, you know... Um, what do you call it in, in Venice? The gondola. The, yeah, the, yeah, he drove the gondola, you know, through Venice streets, but that had, we saw it, like, expand into a hovercraft. Like, yeah. it, it's an, a self-consciously silly moment, but there is no explanation for how Bond is able to steer this speedboat and then just have it function normally once it gets back on, on, on water. How amazing would a callback would it have been if it had been the gondola that he yeah. ended up jumping into <laughs> to chase this lady? Um, yeah, it's bizarre. And then, uh, you know, an, another thing about his, you know, Superman ishness and, you know, how they really can't avoid it at this point is that, you know, he gets a debilitating shoulder injury, which they make a big deal out of. Yeah. Um, but then it doesn't matter. He's doing all the same stuff. Like every once in a while he remembers to wince or whatever and hold the shoulder, but it's, he's still doing all the same James Bond stuff. It's not actually any kind of a vulnerability. It's a completely phony baloney thing. Uh, that he has to get Molly Worm Flash to literally trade her, <laughs> compromise her position as a British uh, agent to uh, have sex with James Bond and clear him for duty uh, in a truly unfortunate sequence in the history of the Bond movies. And you know, this is one of my gripes with Pierce Brosnan as a Bond actor, but having him have an injury he gets to play throughout the movie, like his his neck tendon work when he's in pain is really unparalleled uh, as far as <laughs> active. Like he, 
he's just constantly and he's you know he's being tortured and yet yeah so that's how far that's how much the mood forgets about his shoulder injury that there's a bond torture sequence on a man who has a broken collarbone and there's no mention of anybody like if they touch his shoulder it would hurt but he's being tortured he leans against the wall it it would hurt yeah yeah (laughs) no we're just going to put him in this elaborate chair that squeezes him and, you know, we've been knocking Brosnan quite a bit. I should just take a minute to say, I do like Pierce Brosnan as yeah, an actor. Too. I think, though, and I think I brought it up uh, before, maybe when we were doing the fight by the fire, uh, he specifically excels at playing, like, a charming sleazebag. Maybe even more than Connery as Bond uh, in movies like The Matador and The Tailor of Panama. He does this thing where he is a completely... Uh, a moral scumbag like somebody who just does things that are unforgivable but because it's pierce brosnan he finds a way to make it charming in his very first role in the uh, long uh, the long good friday where he plays a, he has no lines but he's an uh, an assassin uh at a spa and you could just see how he could charm somebody uh, to their death you know yeah. like he's good he's he's good at that that's like the thing he does and so maybe the fault is that he's not scumming enough as bond maybe they try to make him too picture perfect you know they try to take all the kind of danger off him uh and again i'll have more things to say about this when we talk about the next movie but uh i think that might be part of it he's just too too well dra- too perfectly drawn and yeah. the superman aspect is not what they should have focused on yeah his suits movie. are always perfect his hair is always perfect yeah Mm-hmm. yeah too perfect um line this movie i liked was uh where uh, electra says you'd miss me and he says i never miss yeah that's a good line and he and um oh now i'm not gonna remember her name uh sophie murnau have uh good chemistry in this yes. movie uh it's one of the things that works even though her character is not particularly well written um they make those scenes work so there's that there's that there's that to hold yes. on to yeah um because uh, Renard is so much in the background. The other characters other than him and Elektra are so much in the background. This movie, Christmas Jones, which I'm not going to like, I'm not going to dig into Denise Richards in this film the way a lot of people like to do, because I think she's totally adequate. She's at least Tanya Roberts level of adequate. Yeah. yeah, Um, That role is just so poorly written. Like it's all her dialogue is either exposition or like uh a trigger line to get James to explain something. Yeah. She's practically an incorporeal observer throughout this movie. I mean, she's not actively fucking shit up like Mary Goodnight, but she is still useless. Like literally she at one point tells Bond, Oh, someone's behind you. Watch out. He's behind you. That is the extent of her action in this movie. Other than that, she is literally just standing around. So I don't think that's Denise Richards fault at all. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's just the writers, you know, not even giving a shit about making this character believable or flesh and blood in any way. Yeah. Michael Apted, um, cast her for the quote jiggle vision, his words. So (laughs) there you go. Although I'd say for Apted, maybe that's uh, it's encouraging that he had some idea because this is a guy who, you know, he made the Up movies, but he also makes very thunderingly boring narrative films like Nell. I mean, just (laughs) some of the most completely forgettable Hollywood gloss. Um, So the idea that he actually wanted to inject some kind of titillizing, you know, aspect into this film, I guess, is encouraging to hear. Um, but uh, even that, even that aspect of Christmas Jones, I think, does not work. I mean, she's dressed like Lara Croft. Yeah, she's just kind of there. 
you know, Sophie Murnau's character exudes a lot more charisma and, you know, energy, I think, as a character than she does. Yeah, and I think, you know, Abted, the director's choices for, for these three, the three later Brosnan movies are just so curious to me that it seems sort of, all of them seem inexplicable in their own way. And there was, there seems to have been, at least the way Daniel Kleeman tells it, who was a, a producer and, you know, an MGM executive, is that there was this sort of push and pull conflict between him and Brosnan and, and the Broccoli's over whether to get like a, a workman-like director who would just do what they were told and, you know, be a cog in the machine or an auteur who would bring their own ingredients to the franchise. And like, if you got the Wachowskis to do a bond, even if it failed, everybody would be there for the next one to see what like Spielberg would do on oh, a Spielberg bond or a Wachowski bond. Everybody would be there for that. And so mm. it seemed like they did neither of those for these. Um, especially for, for the fourth one, you got like a really interesting like indie director who just seemed to not vibe with the tone of the franchise. And, you know, like you said, Abdead seemed not to vibe with the franchise either. Just a super safe pick, I think, yeah. you know, um, but not even one who was kind of up to the task of making a huge Hollywood action movie in any way compelling. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, we should point out, too, we had failed to mention that Albert Broccoli passed away between Goldeneye yeah. and Tomorrow Never Dies. So, you know, his uh, daughter's taking over the franchise. Michael Wilson is now uh, one of the head people. So it's a, it's a new set of people and they're kind of. I guess on the one hand, you can say, well, it's not like they're old fashioned guys who are out of touch. You know, these are you know younger people taking over the franchise at this point. And they are, they, they clearly want in the Sheryl Crow decision. It's like, we want like someone who's hot, you know, someone who is definitely in demand to make this bond franchise seem modern and cool. But with that decision, a director like Michael Apted just like is a question mark over my head. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to make a, documentary about the James Bond <laughs> franchise get Michael Apted sure <laughs> 007 up get yeah. Michael Apted yeah. otherwise why uh <laughs> it's funny I I was uh um dreading having to come in here and talk smack about John Cleese until today where he was uh <laughs> Uh, has uh, outed himself as a turf and somebody who's going to defend J.K. Rowling. So fuck John Cleese, respectively. Oh, I know, it's what disappointing. A, uh, but yeah, as I was saying, John Cleese, uh, the wall screens, the giant expositional brain hologram, x-ray specs used to see women in their underwear. This is all so Austin Powersy to me. I mean, when you start yeah. recycling jokes from a Richard Grieco comedy yeah. <laughs> for your Bond film, you need to take a new direction, you know? I, I like the idea of seeing that everybody in this casino is armed. Like that's a good punchline, but the way they get to it is very stupid because of course the x-ray glasses see women's underwear, but not men in their underwear. They they just see that they're wearing guns and then, and then like their, their suit shirts that it, X-rays don't work that way. They're like PG-13. Yeah, you know? PG-13 vision. <laughs> it does not go through bras or underwear, yeah. but uh, it will tell you if someone is armed or not. You can see their lingerie. Yeah, if, if it was like 
metal like visual metal detector or something i think the the gag would be much better yeah i mean the gag in general i think was yeah. just doomed to failure yeah probably from the get-go where they're like oh this would be a funny thing to put in a james bond movie if they hadn't already used it in a richard Grieco movie in 1991 yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know yeah. those the, those gag ads at in the back of 1960s comic books what if those were real <laughs> Yeah, so no wonder Q retired with this movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I think we should say, you know, it is a nice send-off for Desmond Llewellyn um, to have him sort of like the character of Q go out on his own terms to go off with a couple cool lines and to press a button and be lowered into the floor, you know, of a gadget of his own design. I think that's that's a nice way to say goodbye to the character. It's a nice recovery because always having an escape plan is a terrific line to go out on. Yeah. Never let them see you bleed. Uh, Weird. Did I ever get that from Q ever? Never said it once. (laughs) Never let who see you bleed. I mean, I have questions about that, but he's gone. We can't ask him. He's already exited the building. Maybe it's the franchise trying to justify how much of a superhero Pierce Brosnan is in the role, like he's a he's a body who doesn't bleed. That that literally Maybe, is his but, whole reason for being. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. But uh, to attach it to Q makes no sense. Maybe even M saying it would have made yeah. some kind of sense. Whatever. But but that last line though is terrific. So uh, nice to see him go off on a good line after a head scratching one. And um, you know he's somebody that everybody had just nothing but love to say you know just nothing but kind words for and that day he loved being q um even if he was notorious for not being able to memorize his lines and being just totally out of his depth when it comes to technology he just loved being sort of an ambassador for the brand he loved meeting people you know he just loved glad handing as q and being on set all the time so he he, he just everybody's favorite uncle basically yeah and had one of his absolutely best exchanges uh, he and Brosnan are great together. I should yes, say that too. Yes. Uh, one of his best exchanges ever in Goldeneye where, you know, he says, don't touch that. That's my lunch. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's the kind of comedy I could get behind, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. uh, character, character-based comedy and, and also playing off of, you know, the cliches of the franchise. Like that's the kind of comedy I could get yeah. behind. Smart lines like that. Uh, more so than, uh, yeah, some of the junk that we get in these films. Oh, you know what too? Uh, sort of the uh, oh sheesh moment of this movie is, uh, and, I, and I'm totally blaming uh, Apted on this, the scene where Bond and Elector are having it out, the very dramatic scene, there is this faint thunder sound effect in the background as they're like having this dramatic moment that is so goddamn cheesy. I just hate it. <laughs> the scene would be fine, except that there's just this like, these two characters are really conflicting together and so yeah. we're going to have the sound of a storm. And oh, okay. take it out. Take it out. Does not belong in a Bond movie. What are you doing, man? This is not Nell. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to listen for that the next time I watch it. <laughs> it's it's unmissable when you realize that it's just awful. But the uh, film does have ski scenes. You like the Bond ski scenes, right? Yeah. You said that in the past. Yeah. I'll, anytime for Bond something positive to cool. say about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. What are they? The like the the Skyhawks. The the um the jet skis on on parachutes. Yeah, the mm-hmm. fans. Sh- yeah, the shoot things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They seem just a very blatant attempt to f- try and find something cool 
to do that's non-traditional, but it just really, it, it, they are not threatening looking. But that is, that is a nice Brosnan moment though, where it plays against the Superman thing where he thinks he's deflated it and the guy manages to get back up on the thing and he has a moment like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 he yeah. thought he had defeated the guy in the thing, but then he didn't. And so he has sort of this kind of vulnerable moment where he's like, yeah. what? Oh no, <laughs> you know, this thing's still coming at me. But then at the end, of course, he has this vest that magically protects them from an avalanche. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to have in general, yeah. just walking around in case a piano falls on you or something. Uh, I would say my one, you know, between the my not understanding even what the villainous plot is in this and uh, the, the supporting characters having no appeal whatsoever. Uh, the one change in this whole rewatch so far for me, in terms of like my bond ranking, my personal pantheon is that tomorrow never dies moved up over world is not enough. Just slightly okay. <laughs> because I think I preferred at least some competent actions, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so and, and a quick moving plot to like the sort of dry, non-ideas of this movie you know and the sort of huge missed opportunities of this film yeah just the structural clumsiness i think of this movie in general and it, again i pile on apt it here i know but he just it, even more so than the uh stop my mama shoot guy just comes off as someone who's <laughs> out of his depth and should not have been the guy to make the world is not enough and a cool title too you know a bondian yeah. title yeah yeah it is his family crest so mm-hmm. yeah we it's another the franchise has a very very long memory and a very very short memory and it's and in this film and the next one it it seems like um doing those two things at the same time is is very problematic yeah yeah sums it up nicely any last thoughts on this one um just that the uh, stockholm syndrome is not really a thing <laughs> I think the reason why it's called Stockholm syndrome is because it happened once in Stockholm uh, and that's it. So to base an entire plot off of it, it's a little problematic. Uh, it sets up the great bender line from Futurama where they're being held hostage. He says, I think I'm developing Stockholm syndrome. Handsome. <laughs> <laughs> no better way to end uh, the discussion on that than a bender line. <laughs> All right. So we're skipping, we're skipping over decades here. We're going into 2002 die another day. Uh, and I've actually got a lot to say about this film, surprisingly after rewatching it again. So uh, let me launch into this here and uh, just be patient with me for just a minute, Mr. Video, while I sure. do this. Uh, I, when this movie came out, was announced, I thought this is the absolute worst title of a bond movie. It's so fucking lazy. It sounds like they were, ha- they were hanging around and they said, uh, eh, we'll come up with a title another day. And someone said, Ooh, <laughs> about uh and then years later i found out the origin of the title do you know what it is no i do not it's actually cool it makes me like it now it's actually one of my favorites it's that gene frampton who typed up ian fleming's manuscripts right and uh, helped perfect some of the plots of the books uh wrote him a letter after reading thunderball which she loved and was you know really wanted to like talk to him about immediately and uh she says i regret the end as my naivety and literal mind would like to know exactly what happened. What about Blofeld? Or does he live to die another day? I think that's cool. And I think, yeah. And I I think that that reference uh, speaks to the strengths of this movie 
um, where the Bond references feel more organic than they do in the previous pros and adventures where they feel like ripoffs or callbacks. Uh, Colonel Sun, right? Uh, the title, which again in the movie, the dialogue is used the way they use it in You Only Live Twice. Uh, the blackmailing video from, from Russia with Love, Birds of the West Indies book popping up, the diamonds, the health club, the Union Jack parachute tied up and threatened by a laser, the Thunderball underwater breathing apparatus making an appearance, sucked out of an airplane, Bond eating. You know, if you want to like bring Boston down to earth, how about Bond eating, which in Fleming's books is such a huge thing to offer Bond a, you know, lobster stuff with quail's eggs or whatever the hell it is, you know, like that is something I want to see in a Bond movie. And I would say that all this stuff, a lot of the stuff is, is piled into the first hour. And for me, the first hour approaches greatness mm -hmm. of this movie. It has a very satisfying opening hovercraft chase that ends with Bond captured and tortured in North Korea, being basically written off by MI6. Um, he doesn't devise an escape on his own. He's humiliatingly released as part of a hostage exchange with the terrorist motherfucker he failed to exterminate. Uh, and then via shock, uh, electric shock, he gets his groove back, he bonds up, makes it uh, his mission to go after this guy. And there's this extended uh, vacation in Cuba that feels so classic Bond, uh, even with the Superman stuff still in there. Uh, and even the introduction of Gustav Graves and Miranda Frost and the absurdly drawn out Frenching, uh, Frenching, Frenching scene, I kind of love the first hour. Then the movie loses its mind. <laughs> it's almost like it says to itself, this is all too safe. We need to reestablish Bond and MI6 immediately and we need invisible cars and virtual reality and an ice fortress and plastic surgery and a laser satellite. Uh, you, can, you can pinpoint the moment because Bond says, maybe it's time you let me get on with my job. And that's when it goes into that, that stratosphere, it goes right into the virtual reality, which I appreciate the Sam Fuller reference, the 40 guns reference of shooting, your, shooting the hostage, uh, but is immediately ridiculous. And this first hour makes me wish actually that we had stuck to our decade structure a little bit, just because a lot of this good stuff in this movie uh, fits in with D the Daniel Craig era. Yeah. You know, even though Purvis and Wade had st gotten started on World Is Not Enough, this is the one that feels like we're really trying to reimagine the series. We're removing uh, the 007 somewhat from the Superman invincibility by making the torture part of the title sequence, which 13 and a half minutes into the movie. So it's a long stretch, just like the previous one, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like a long stretch because it's exciting stuff and it's all yeah. sort of singularly uh, set. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the opening action sequence is of a piece, not like two or right. three different scenes. It's not scattered all over. It's yeah. not getting all the characters in there and starting the plot. It's just sort of being its own uh, set piece by itself. And Judy Dench's M feels more like the version of the character from the Craig era during this part, you know, even though she once again trusts the wrong lady. Yeah. Um, and they even refer to Bond as a blunt instrument, um, which they do again in Casino Royale. So I think the Ford Fairlines and Figs and Mojitos is all so Fleming, but it also mm. fits Brosnan too. You know, he seems more like Bond to me in this first hour. Uh, the sex scene with Halle Berry's Jinx, which on the commentary Brosnan deems fairly raunchy for a Bond movie, uh, is just the right blend of romantic and dangerous, you know, and the cinematography where every location has its own look. You miss it later when um, Brosnan falls into a shot and misses his mark uh, and the key lights going all over his face and it's like embarrassing. But like the first hour, it's, it's gorgeous. And so I think if this movie had managed to maintain what the first hour sets up, it would have been one of the great ones. 
as it is, I could honestly say that I like this movie better than the worst Roger Moore or the worst Sean Connery, mm -hmm. but um, it might be the second best Brosnan. I think, I think I would say it's definitely for me, the second best Brosnan after Goldeneye. Yeah. I, I totally agree that the first hour of this is great, but I, there are other elements that really grate on me. Uh, like I don't like Halle Berry um, as a, as a, like she, I feel like, like every line she puts just too much spin on, um, you, you know, and I hate how Pierce Brosnan says mojito. It's just, ugh, it's so <laughs> aggravating. Um, I'm well, with you she, on that, but I yeah. think the Halle Berry specifically though, in that first hour and the, the uh, incursion onto the island, I like her. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's until they go to the ice fortress and she says stuff like your mama and, you know, she yeah. essentially becomes the Christmas Jones character uh, and she's the damsel in distress that they lose it. Uh, I like her though in Cuba. And maybe this is me being too persnickety, but like it's clear she's like never held a gun before. Mm, like just okay. the way that she like sticks it out in front of her, just so awkward. Uh, and just, it just makes me, not be able to believe that she's a secret agent. Um, I don't know what Michael Madsen is doing in this movie. Um, <laughs> he is slumming it so hard. Even for Michael Madsen, he feels like, was that a take or what? Did, you, <laughs> did he think this was like, they were still setting up lights when he gave this performance. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, this, there's, there's some really bad speed ramping in this movie. Uh, not as bad as tomorrow never dies though. Yeah. The, I mean, yeah, and, and there's also some some very poorly aged um, digital color grading uh, in this film, and that's that's just an artifact of the time, you know. So I can't really fault the film for that. Um, but but yeah, I, I love like all, all the stuff in the Hong Kong hotel. I think is fantastic. I, I love the moment of him yeah. showing up at, in this bedraggled, you know, filthy shirt and and you know and admittedly not great looking beard and and, and hair and ha and having the bond you know confidence back because he's in his element again and be able to just by sheer nerve get a room at the swankiest hotel in hong kong and and to, for you know the the manager to be like well yes of course mr bond and and you know and the costuming to, has a huge uh, yeah. thing to do with that too i think the costume of this is a lot better than the yeah. last three films where sometimes brosnan looked like a banker going to work with like a tie and everything like he looked good but he didn't look like bond having like the yeah. collar over the coats in this it works better for him yeah like he looks more the part yeah and um and, and then having having the the kind of switcheroo of the the manager actually being a, an agent of the, the you know the Chinese intelligence, I think it, it works really well. And 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 him going to Cuba, and I love the sort of repertoire he has with Raúl, um, you know, the manager of the cigar factory slash Cuban assets. What he orders the Delatecto Delateco? Yeah, del, 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 ah, I can't say it. Uh, delectados yes yes yeah and so you know it's a reference to the Cameron bay character but i think they got a, a great actor to, to do that um that's cool i hadn't picked that up yeah that's great yeah yeah emilio echeverria you know who is in amos peros and ituama tambien so he's worked with uh Inyatu and alfonso Quiron. so you know he's he's a like legit you know spanish-speaking actor and so to get somebody of that caliber um, to play against Pierce Brosnan, I think is a great decision. I wish we could have seen more of that character. Mm. Um, maybe even 
have him pal around with Bond the way Karen Bay did in From Russia with Love and maybe, you know, keep the movie a little more grounded going forward. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought of that. And that it's significant to have someone with a good rapport because bringing Robbie Coltrane back in um, World's Not Enough uh, falls flat. Like the fact that he just kind of keeps popping up until he gets killed finally. It's almost like yeah. the movie says, all right, if you're going to keep popping up, we're going to have to kill you off. You know, if you can't just like yeah. leave the plot alone um to have like a, a uh, an ally who's like able to actually help bond and move the plot forward uh, is significant you know and not just be a guy who's there which is how the robbie coltrane character comes off i think in world world is not enough mm-hmm. and and just as his office is just so like perfect and, and raul's office is just so you know gorgeously um decorated and art directed um and i, I wish we could have had that aesthetic um, throughout, you know, throughout know, the movie, but I know the I mean, first and, hour and, it looks immaculate. Yeah, and and also Rosamund Pike is such a great actress. She elevates the material of anything she's in, and and even at this early stage in her career, she's absolutely, I think, killing it as as Miranda Frost. And and I kind of wish that maybe, and, and I know she probably couldn't have been the main villain because it would have been Echoes of Alex Trevelyan having somebody from MI6 be, be the big bad, but mm-hmm. um, the whole, once we get into the whole like face switching thing with Gustav Graves and Colonel Moon, uh, it, it, it just, it's too much. It, it really goes into insane overload in that second hour. Like I don't even, it's almost like these two movies, these two halves of this movie don't even exist yeah. in the same world. Uh, it is truly bizarre to experience that very, very uh, identifiable split, you know, that yeah. happens in this movie. Uh, although I will say, you know, I'm trying to look at the positive things to say too about the second half. Uh, I like the sleeping with the gun under his pillow is a callback to Paris Carver and, mm-hmm. you know, tomorrow never dies. I like that even though Paris Carver as a character really didn't work very well. Uh, I didn't really buy Terry Hatcher's, you know, uh, background with bond that all felt really forced uh i like though that this this is committing to like this series of bond in this era of bond to say we're going to remind you of something that we said two movies ago uh you know visually kind of connect these films in some way so i i admire that even though it comes from something that <laughs> didn't really work for me at the time it works for me to kind of try to connect these movies in some way and i'm gonna def- i'm going to defend the invisible car um, because the effects are bad, no mm. question. But it there is invisible technology now. Like the invis the invisibility cloak. Like you, that is a thing that can be made for a human being now. I mean, it'll probably cost you hundreds of millions of dollars. But so so for that thing to be like the one standout piece of ridiculous, you know, Bond ephemera in this film, I think is unfair. I think there's <laughs> God, uh, that's like, terrifying, yeah. man. I don't want to think about invisible people walking around. <laughs> I don't want to get hit by an invisible car yeah. when I'm crossing the street. You know? Yeah. This is truly yeah. this is horrible. I don't want invisible cars. Yeah. Uh, Not half as bad as the windsurfing <laughs> scene. No, no, we'll get into that. But uh I will say about the invisible car, one thing that makes no sense to me whatsoever, uh, when Zhao finally meets his end by rushing towards the car and the adaptive camouflage comes back on. Uh, and he drives through the car. Uh, 
camouflage doesn't make the car literally disappear, does yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Because that's the implication of that. I know we see that he is, you know, got the spikes on the tires and he's driven up the wall or whatever, but it makes it seem like the whole way he tricks him is by making the car literally disappear so he yeah. shoots through the car, which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, speaking, of, speaking of Harry Potter maneuvers, he, he disapparates. Uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, better than the windsurfing scene. And the windsurfing scene, I will at least say, uh, it's it's literally the worst effect ever put into yeah. a Bond film or maybe any mainstream film. It looks awful. Yeah. And this is um, the same year Lord of the Rings of Two Towers came out. Like, yeah. the, the, the digital technology was there. You could make <laughs> we, we had it. Yeah, stuff, <laughs> look, stuff could look good, but this did not. But it's really notable in the way that you just your brain immediately contrasts it to the opening scene surfing yeah. into North Korea, which works. Like that, I like those agents sneaking mm. into uh, onto the shore by surfing into it at night. The, that photography is cool. Uh, it looks neat, you know, and yeah. it gets you right into the plot. And uh, to have that be such a, I would say, like a subtle opening, mm. you know, for these characters compared to this extravagant uh, windsurfing on ice water um you just can't help but notice like how far we've come from in in a bad way from the beginning of this movie to the insane things that happened in the second half (laughs) yeah i don't even i don't don't even mind madonna in this movie like i I, I don't mind her being in the movie (laughs) her song is a different story but yeah uh, yeah it it should have been it should have been the tone of like the world is not enough song because I really like that garbage song. Um, yeah, we didn't mention I, I like that. But yeah, that's that, a decent song. Yeah, it should have been a very morose, contemplative theme because it's played over James being tortured. So you should have had something that kind of thematically and mood-wise um, matched that imagery. Right. Not, you know, administering uh, you know scorpion stings and then yeah. giving him the anecdote yeah. right yeah. afterwards and, and that's another boarding him yeah yeah it's another purpose uh weight thing that'll come back with craig you know drinking the uh, at the bar on the beach with the scorpion on his hand you know yeah. i mean it's imagery that you know you're going to see again but i agree that sets the wrong tone for the movie yeah. entirely it should have been a lot more somber and yeah. not uh, this uh dead tech bullshit stuff that we get yeah. from madonna but her, uh, but her as a her as a fencing instructor, somebody that's clear that Bond knows, I think, is another example of Bond having history with these characters that maybe could be very deadly, and he has some brief repartee, and then you know the scene continues, and like that stuff, you know, I like, uh, but you know, then it goes off into very, you know out there territory yeah the concept of the the character the fencing instructor is okay i mean i can't get over that's madonna i mean she said she seems like she's standing there going act 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 in her head you know um maybe we spend a little bit too much time with her and this movie's already long enough that we didn't really need all these side things going on uh god it's two two hours and 12 minutes this film it's like oh guys yeah I know that the Bond films in general give gear towards two hours, but this feels like two hours and 12 minutes, especially in the second half of the film. Um, but yeah, yeah I, it's a good point though about the Madonna song. Absolutely. It's uh, tonally, this movie is ends up all over the place and uh, it belongs in the second half of the film rather than the first. Maybe if we split this movie yeah. into two, you can move the Madonna song over to the second half and 
get garbage back to do one for the first half of the movie. And I don't know. So the whole thing hinges on this big laser, this big satellite laser, which is straight out of like the Command and Conquer video games. The um, interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my exact demographic where I'm reference the ion <laughs> cannon from a late nineties real time strategy game. But um, so it like it plow the laser plows its way through, you know, like no man's land, um, 38th parallel bases explodes all these mines, but then the cargo plane that they're in at the end of the movie can just fly through it and be superficially <laughs> damaged. <laughs> And not know, instantly yeah. evaporated. Yeah. And yeah. that's a moment too where you really feel like it's a cool moment where Jinx realizes she's going to have to sacrifice themselves to save the world, but she's going to have yeah. to, you know, steer this plane into this oncoming laser. That's a really intense moment. And it is really undermined by the fact that it just yeah. slowly disintegrates, yeah. giving them plenty of time to get into a undamaged helicopter and yeah. fall out of the sky and, and save themselves. Although I, I do like tossing Gus, Gustav Graves into a jet engine. <laughs> that that was pretty killer, I thought. No, no, that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Gustav Graves is weird. He looks so much and acts so much like Guy Pierce. I always forget it's yeah. not Guy Pierce in this movie. It's Rupert something. I can't even remember his actor's name. Oh my god. I I I take so many notes and then I can't find what I'm actually. Toby Stevens. Okay, Toby Stevens, right. <laughs> I'm thinking his name's got to be Rupert something, right? <laughs> That's what he looks like. Um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I think Miranda Frost comes off as a better villain than he does in this. Uh, yeah, he. He's a weird, 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 yeah. weird, weird concept for a character. Yeah, because <laughs> the idea of you know, General Moon being somebody who's very pragmatic in his role as a military leader in North Korea, having to face off against his hardline, you know, um, hawkish son is really interesting or very compelling. And so to disconnect the audience from that, to have a very sort of self-consciously British looking guy be the face of that North Korean officer is not only problematic, but separates the audience and those two characters from that father-son dynamic. And so like maybe if you combine the Colonel Moon and the Zhao character and have the son have been mutilated by Bond and have the diamonds, you know, scarring his face and then try and then because of that going to the genetic research lab and becoming this kind of weird, like, white zombie of his former self and to face his father as that would have been interesting. Um, but to have this, you know, white guy parading around as a, as a Korean colonel just sort of deflates the, the character depth that we could have had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, beyond the kind of practicality of him managing to come to England and become one of the most famous yeah. <laughs> dynamic uh, philanthropist, whatever uh, he's supposed to be uh, playboys, uh, on the one hand, it's like, well, it's interesting to examine the idea that, you know, in order to really take over the world, to conquer the world, you have to be a white guy. You know, yeah. you have to be like a white man who can get people behind him. And then at the same time saying, what are we saying here, guys, that uh, all, you know, North Koreans secretly would like to be white men, <laughs> you know, yeah. white, debonair white men uh, 
that's not exactly what we want to get across in this movie at all. Not exactly. Right. So it's, uh, I guess I want to give it credit for being an interesting idea. Yeah. Maybe. But that, it's, it's one that they, they just didn't, didn't explore enough. And, it, and in the end, we know the confrontation with the father ends up being Electric King all over again, right? She's just someone yeah. who resents the rich father and wants to, the high powered, uh, high placed father and wants to get rid of them and usurp them. Uh, okay. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, that general thought that James Bond killed his son for, you know, like 15 months. And that could have been a lot of great ground for, you know, narrative development. And, you know, maybe he, that general could try to be getting revenge on his bond or something. But, you know, we, we never get any of that. No, no. Yeah. So uh, to say this one overextends itself, I think is uh, not even not even giving enough credit for his just yeah. and especially belly up because nuts it gets. That actor is Kenneth Sang, who is in A Better Tomorrow, The Killer, and Supercop. Uh, so, you know, General another, Moon, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So another great, you know, international bona fide actor whose presence is not totally utilized. Yeah. 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 It gives the, gives the film a little, uh, class, but yeah, it doesn't have enough to do. Uh, so again, I don't know what to say. I, there are things about yeah. this one I like, and I feel like I defend it more than, than, than most people would, uh, other than the windsurfing scene. Um, and I'm even defend, I'm even willing to defend some of its bad ideas because they at least are interesting ideas. And I feel mm-hmm. like Brosnan must have been a bum that he didn't get to do another movie because he kind of hits his stride in this one in a lot of ways. And I feel like he becomes more Bond in this one than he is in the first three movies. So uh, there was definitely development and it was definitely going in a direction. But I guess they ultimately decided this is not the direction that they wanted to go in. And that yeah. they had to kind of re, re- halt everything and, re- and start yeah. over from scratch. Yeah, it's a weird, I would have liked to have been at the behind the scenes meetings at, you know, kind of the war room uh, debriefs of uh, Die Another Day because this movie made more money than any other, than any of the Pierce Brosnan movies. And from that, they decided they needed to do a reboot. Um, and, And I definitely agree they needed to get their ducks in a row because of the kind of bifurcated structure of this film. Um, but as I think it was a sign of their maturity as, you know, filmmakers to be like, we're, we're not, we're not speaking with a coherent voice anymore. Uh, and we need to really get our shit together. Yeah. That's interesting. When unlike the Dalton transition, you know, it wasn't yeah. because the business model wasn't working anymore. It's just that, you know, the times there are changed and we need to yeah. make drastic steps to actually do something to make this series continue. So um, but any other, any last thoughts, John, about the Brosnan era? I mean, how would you rank it in the whole series? Do you think it's a deplorable era overall, or do you think it's it stands shoulder to shoulder with the rest of it? Um, I definitely think Goldeneye can stand shoulder to shoulder with with the best of the Bonds. Um, that's a move I love. Um, I think Martin Campbell hits all the right notes. I think the action's great. I think the effects are great, and I love all the supporting cast. Um, and I think the rest of the series uh, is a just a combination of big swings that miss and um, being just fine. Um, you know, I, and I say this with love because I love the franchise. I love James Bond. I think Pierce Brods is great. It's, I think it, he might have loved being James Bond more than any other 
actor. Like I think he clearly had affection for the role. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and so it's fun to watch that. Uh, it's fun to watch a guy have fun being in these big action movies. And I, I can't take that away from him. Uh, but I, I just wish um, the last three were more consistent. Yeah. I think you really hit on the head comparing Tomorrow Never Dies to World is Not Enough by saying one of them goes too much into like the action extravaganza while the other one uh, focuses too much away from it. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that that's sort of the story of these four films is that they're trying to strike a balance and they're just, they're just not getting there. You know, it's, it's either too much Roger Moore, it's either too much Sean Connery or it's, you know, just they, c- they couldn't figure it out. And then they, when they actually decided hey, we're going to try to make Brosnan Bond. It wasn't until the fourth movie, you know, even though he has highlight moments in Goldeneye that I admire and I think are cool. Uh, I don't think he's really distinctive as Bond until the first hour of Die Another Day. And yeah. it's frustrating um, because when you think about Connery and Moore and even Lesby, uh and certainly Dalton coming out of the gate, knowing what they were going to do, you know, like this was the character. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the main criticism against these films is that they just needed to, to figure it out and they didn't ever, you know, I think that uh, you get, these are fun, these are fun movies and there's a lot of cool stuff in them and a lot of neat ideas and the Katie Lang song um, yeah. and the Madonna song, they exist in the same, I think it yeah. makes sense that they exist in the same era um, <clears throat> because they had great ideas and bad ideas and just could not find somewhere in between mm-hmm. uh, to make them quite work. So it was interesting. It was really interesting going back and revisiting them. Uh, so I very much appreciate that, and I appreciate uh, talking to you about it, John. I, I I love getting to have these conversations with you, Mr. Cribs, and it's an honor to, to be part of these podcasts. So thank you so much. Honor to have you. And I um, next time we get together, we're going to tackle all the the Craig movies. We're going to stick mm, with this model. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Inspector, and maybe no time to die there's no telling we don't know what the, the schedule for it is we might be able to wedge it in there and uh, have our initial reactions to the very new bond movie uh, supposedly craig's last but uh in the meantime everyone uh these are fun movies and i'm having a fun time talking yeah i look forward to the next episode same here